Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf and tonight we're jumping right back into the pressure cooker with the second phase of the Imjin War. I should point out this is part two of an ongoing series, so if you're just tuning in, you might want to start on the episode preceding this one, but if you like cutting into the middle of the dance, here it is. But before we can do that, I've got to thank Lucas from Uppsala, Sweden and John from Whitefish, Montana for buying us around. If you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that make a donation button. I also want to apologize if I sound a little off tonight because I'm as sick as a mule deer. So instead of my usual beers, I'm drinking Dayquil during tonight's show. I'm giving it about two bullets out of five. But hey, the show must go on. And so now I've got the epic story of why the Korean people still exist as a unique people in this amalgamating world. A lot of it comes down to one man, one individual, who did what no one else could. He was a man called Admiral Yi Sun Sin. Such are the foundation stones of nations, men who create or maintain a people in the teeth of destruction. He's a Korean Aragorn, and this is his story. Now, I could spend 30 minutes trying to provide a succinct introduction to Yi Sun Sin, but I don't have to, because historian Stephen Turnbull already has. Here's how Turnbull describes Admiral Yi. Quote, Yi Sun Sin is Korea's greatest hero and is one of the outstanding naval commanders in the entire history of the world. He was born in 1545 and received the thorough Confucian education that was so necessary for men of his social station. Yi passed the military service examinations in 1576, after which he was appointed to his first command. After a second brief command in Chola in 1580, he was moved back to the army and saw action against the Jerkins in 1583, distinguishing himself in one particular battle beside the Tumen River, where he enticed the Jerkins forward with a false retreat. In 1587, he fell foul of the factional rivalry that plagued Korean society and found himself back in the ranks as a common soldier. After annoying a general with his constant questioning and critiques, a sincere student squashed by a lesser professor. Fortunately for Korea, Yi's boyhood friend became Prime Minister of Korea, and the minister had his old friend Sun Sin reinstated in 1591. In the same year, Yi Sun Sin was appointed naval commander of the Chola province, where he enthusiastically went to work preparing for what he considered the inevitable Japanese onslaught. End quote. Now you're probably wondering if Sun Sin was so great. How did the Japanese cross the ocean and land in Korea in the first place? And the answer comes back, Yi Sun Sin was not in command of the part of the ocean the Japanese used for their first invasion, which I recounted in last month's episode. Sun Sin was far away from the invasion point, and his advice went unheeded by the commanders who were responsible for stopping the initial Japanese invasion. One of the key men charged with stopping the initial Japanese waterborne assault was Admiral Pak Hong. Admiral Hong had observed the Japanese make landfall in Pusan Harbor, packed together like fish in a barrel. A perfect opportunity for an aggressive commander to win a total victory. Instead, 
As Stephen Turnbull and many others note, Pak Hong descended from the mountain where he had been observing the Japanese attack, criminally scuttled his own fleet, and destroyed all his armaments and food. He then deserted his own men and escaped overland to a small city where he single-handedly created widespread panic. Such is the fate of people who are ruled by fools. But Pak Hong wasn't the only admiral in charge of defending Korea. There was another one. He was named Wan Kyun. He responded to the invasions by also scuttling part of his own fleet and abandoning his station, fleeing with four ships to a small, out-of-the-way city where he consoled himself in the embrace of his nimble and talented concubine. As a result of these two men's disgraceful action... There were no ships in the area to offer resistance to the Japanese. Contrast these men's actions with the Bushido ethic of the samurai. The samurai would rather die fighting than run away with a thousand concubines. It's plain to see that the Japanese wanted victory more than the so-called leaders of the Koreans. However, there was one man who still loved his people. Admiral Yi Sun Sin. Every day he wrote about his desire to destroy the Japanese in his personal journal, like a second Thorin Oakenshield, vowing to never forget the outrages perpetuated on his people. He sent daily reports to his king where he noted, quote, My heart is filled with anger and grief. It is broken, end quote, when he learned of the Japanese advance into the Korean heartland. But while he acknowledged defeat, he still clung to hope, writing to his king, quote, We must make surprise attacks on the invaders. We must display our martial spirit and shooting power. In my opinion, the enemy attacks fiercely, trampling our fair land under iron feet, because we allowed him to set foot on our shores in the first place, on our land where he is the master of land fighting, instead of fighting him at sea where he has no experience and we can meet as equals. Had our captains of war maintained their warships in formation at sea, menacing the enemy's flank with surprise attacks and fake retreats, this catastrophic national disgrace would not have reached this point end damn quote. For weeks, Sun Sin had examined the Japanese movements and read reports of their seemingly unstoppable conquest of his own homeland. For months, he had searched for Japan's Achilles heel, and then he found it. It was the 30 miles of water separating Japan and Korea. Here was where Sun Sin would deal a death blow to the reinforcements of the samurai. Here was where he would show just how mortal these Japanese godmen really were. At this time, when Japan's land armies totaled some 500,000 men, Japan's navy was relatively small, comprising just 9,200 men. 9,200 men to provide the life's blood, the essential link for 500,000. If that's not an Achilles heel, I don't know what it is. Because the Japanese expected no naval resistance, the ships that transported their massive land armies were simply transport ships, with no military weapons on them except what the soldiers carried themselves. The samurai hadn't fought a major military action on sea for decades. Now I should take a moment to explain the superior nature of the Korean warships. Whereas the Japanese transports were little more than glorified canoes. The majority of the Korean fleet were panoxin boats. Panoxin means board-roofed or multi-storied boats. 
Now, these Pinoxin boats look sort of like an American wedding cake, with smaller tiers stacked on top of one another, essentially giving the Koreans the perpetual advantage of high ground in any naval engagement. A modern historian explains the ingenious design of these Korean ships, quote, The Pinoxin added an extra deck so that oarsmen were separated from the fighting soldiers above. A rudimentary castle on the top deck provided a small tower and command post for the captain. These ships were very solidly built and about 60 feet long at the bottom plates on average. However, the largest one on record was 110 feet long. Every ship had at least 125 men and both sail and oar propulsion. The Panoxin formed the vast majority of Korean ships in 1592. The Korean vessels were also well-armed, a complete reversal of the situation of both armies on land. The Koreans who fought at sea had a wide range of effective artillery weapons, including four types of cannon, which fired a dizzying array of shots. End quote. Korean cannons, which looked just like mounted Lego pirate ship cannons, could shoot cannonball stone, especially designed 10 feet long arrows, flaming arrows, and iron case bomb mortars, which exploded with fire and shrapnel. But unfortunately, historians today possess few details about these tremendous weapons. However, we do know two things from contemporary sources. One, they were highly effective. For instance, in a practice test, the 10-foot-long arrows penetrated past their feathers into solid ground, demonstrating the surprisingly effective penetrative power of these weapons. Two, the Japanese had no answer to these powerful Korean weapons. On land, the samurai dominated wherever they stood, but on sea, they were giants with feet of clay, golden idols ready to fall, such as the vanity and chasing after the wind of the human condition. And Yi Sun Sin had meticulously planned his counterattack for months. And it finally came at the Sea Battle of Okpo. Now, the southern coast of Korea, which faces the Japanese island of Tushima, is a maze of islands, a perfect place for a master of sea warfare to hide his fleet from unsuspecting land powers. And that's just what Sun Sin did. He slowly built his forces up, waiting for the perfect time to strike the lumbering, complacent Japanese transports. And then the time came. Admiral Sun Sen set sail at 2 a.m. in the summer of 1592, leading an armada of 24 Panoxen and 15 smaller fighting vessels, along with 46 other lesser boats. For the next few days, he built up his forces, commanding his peers to augment his own armada and thereby built up an even larger striking force, concentrating his power to strike the enemy, a classic of military strategy. After three days, Yi found 50 Japanese ships whose men were busy looting, raping, and enslaving his countrymen. Rage lightning bolted up his nervous system as he saw the Japanese literally butchering his fellow Koreans. Vengeance was swift. Quick as a politician can exploit his office for money, Sun Sen engaged the unguarded naval rear of the 50 Japanese ships. The revered admiral's own words details what happened next. Quote, At that point, the Japanese, who had been plundering the port, burning and killing, saw our warships through the smoke that rose above the mountain crest and ran about in great confusion, shouting, trying to regain their boats and man their oars, but being afraid to come out to the open sea, they fled along the shores. Six vanguard vessels led the way, end quote. 
Sun Sin's ships encircled the strung out and fleeing enemy. Now, his ships are concentrated. They've got great artillery while the enemy is strung out like a string, right? So they're not concentrated, and he can pick them off one by one. And Sun Sin sent a thunderstorm of pelting cannonballs, flaming arrows, and steel-tipped projectiles into the ill-trained Japanese sailors. If you saw it from a mile away, it was like watching a modern-day fireworks display take place amid a burning, floating cityscape. The Japanese tried to return fire with firearms and arrows, but Sun Sin was a master. He kept his ships safely out of range of the Japanese weapons, leisurely picking off the flailing, exposed Japanese ships one at a time. The way a master rifleman works his bullets through an obstacle course on a firing range, knocking down disjointed targets like they are nothing. Just so, Yi Sun Sin knocked down the Japanese ships like it was target practice. And not only that, but Yi Sun Sin knocked down the religious confidence of the Shinto-believing Japanese. These so-called descendants from the gods bled out from their wounds like mortals. And in the stark blackness of the bottomless ocean, their mouths involuntarily flung open when their insides screamed for air and endlessly sucked cold black water into burning lungs like other mortals. No, these godlike beings were just men. Spartans, SS troopers, samurai, delta operators. In the end, they're simply men, and their mouths will betray them and suck water into their lungs just as regular as an untrained peasant's will. Of course, we can respect the greatest warriors mankind has produced, but all the greatest warriors of mankind have ultimately failed. For one reason or another, they have gone under. We need warriors, and I don't deny it, but we need peacemakers too. One thing we can learn from Hegel, and even many modern Marxist thinkers, is the damage oppression commits on the oppressors. It's much better to make peace as partners, with respect, because in a war like the Imjin War, and most wars, there really is no winner. I know many of you are thinking, how is this relevant for me in Stockholm, Sweden, or Austin, Texas? Well, friend, give it 10 or 20 years. Maybe narcotic gangs will take over major sections of your city like they did in modern Mexico. These people's lives matter to me. I sincerely want them and all people to know what they're getting into when they let slip the dogs of war. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, peace is precious. And it's worth making sacrifices for. Anyway, Yi Sun Sin continued to work death into the scattering and disorganized Japanese armada. He describes the end of the one-sided conflict like this, quote, The invaders could do nothing. They threw their supplies and loot overboard and jumped in the water to swim to the shore, dying in blood, with a few survivors scattered like cockroaches over the rocky cliffs, the sea foaming red from the blood of our enemies, end Quote. A young female Korean prisoner was on a Japanese ship, and she later recalled the battle this way, quote, Cannonballs and long arrows poured down like hail on the Japanese vessels from our ships. Those who were struck by missiles fell dead, bathed in blood, while others rolled on deck with wild shrieks. At that time, I remained motionless with fear in the bottom of the boat for long hours, so I did not know what was happening in the outside world, end quote. After Admiral Yi finished dismembering the Japanese armada, another five Japanese ships leisurely pulled into view. Sun Sin's boats destroyed them, plunging hundreds of victims into the salty depths 
of the Tsushima Strait. The next day, Yi wiped out a further 11 ships, simply removing them from play the way gamers enter cheat codes in Grand Theft Auto and Fallout 4 to remove characters. The 11 Japanese vessels ceased to exist. And so ended the Battle of Okpo, the first major Korean victory in the Imjin Wars, which boosted Korean morale across the peninsula. With this battle, the war entered the second phase, a protracted guerrilla conflict involving China, Japan, and Korea, which would last four years. The hardship for Korea was just beginning. But Yi wasn't done. He was a real master, and real masters pressed their advantage at every opportunity. He set out to find more Japanese ships to destroy before they could even conceive of countermeasures, let alone implement them. Sun Sin was on the hunt. On July 8th, he encountered 12 large Japanese vessels in an extremely strong defensive position and tricked them into chasing his armada into the open sea precisely where he wanted them. Yi told his men to pretend to panic as they retreated. The Japanese were visibly elated and followed Yi's ships, baby ducks being led by a wolf instead of their own mother. That's when Yi Sun Sin unleashed his secret weapon, a weapon he had made on his own design in secret. Before the war even began, it was called the Turtle Ship. The Turtle Ship was a standard panoxin, which had its upper fighting deck completely covered with a curving boarded roof stretching across from the top. There's a picture up at thebattlecast.com if you want to see it. Admiral Yi describes his Turtle Ship this way, quote, the vessel had a dragon's head, from whose mouth we could fire our cannons, and with iron spikes on its back we could pierce the enemy's feet when they tried to board our ship. Because it is in the shape of a turtle, our men can look out from inside, but the enemy cannot look in from outside. It moves so swiftly that it can plunge into the middle of hundreds of enemy vessels in any weather to attack them with cannonballs and fire arrows. End quote. At the Battle of Sakon, the Turtle warship did just that, knocking out all of the Japanese vessels in one engagement. However, one brave Japanese soldier almost changed the course of world history when he jumped on Admiral Sun Sin's command ship and fired a rifle at the famous Admiral at point-blank range before he himself was cut down by scores of mincing blades from the Admiral's personal guard. Here's how pre-modern Korean historian Yu Song-yong described Sun Sin's brush with death. Quote, One day, while leading the battle, Yi Sun Sin felt something sting him on the left shoulder. It was a stray bullet. The blood ran all the way down to his toes, but he did not say a word about it until the battle was over. He had the bullet, which had lodged a couple of inches deep, pulled out. The people who saw it turned pale, but Yi just talked and laughed as if nothing was happening while the surgeon grunted and maneuvered his prongs inside the general's gaping wound. End quote. The bullet had caught Yi in the shoulder, but Yi would later write it was not serious. Serious or not, if the wound had become infected, the Korean people might not exist as an independent cultural group. However, the wound was not infected. Admiral Sun Sin's mind was unclouded, and he planned his next waterborne strike, a daimyo of the sea to rival Hideyoshi on land. And so Yi's unstoppable war caravan pressed on, crisscrossing the islands that dot southern Korea until 21 more Japanese ships were spotted covering a Japanese raid deeper inland. Yi pressed forward with the attack. 
Once again, the turtle ship dealt indiscriminate death to the Japanese, belching cannonballs from its stylized dragon mouths, arrows pouring from its side, the archers carefully concealed behind the impermeable shell. The Japanese naval commander was impassive and unafraid as the battle progressed. An eyewitness said he acted like he was resigned to death. A contemporary Korean who survived the battle and was a prisoner on the Japanese command vessel describes the death of the Japanese admiral this way, quote, Arrows and bullets rained on the command vessel where he sat. First he was sit on the brow, but he was unshaken. But when an arrow pierced his chest, he fell down with a loud cry, end quote. A troop of Korean swordsmen hopped like violent rabbits onto the command ship, cutting down anyone who opposed them, making a straight line for the wounded, bleeding-out Japanese commander mouthing for air the way a dying fish slowly opens and closes its mouth on the noxious shoreline. A Korean swordsman lumberjacked his silvering curved blade into the admiral's neck, beheading him in one stroke. A second later, he was brandishing the head as a sign of total victory, lifting the hearts of every Korean in the fleet as they drove home the attack. Attack. At this point in the battle, the Japanese fleet was a fleet in name only, worker drones cut off from the all-knowing queen. Yet again, Admiral Yi's familiar melody played out in a song of tangible death. All the Japanese ships were either destroyed or captured. It was a total Korean victory. Just a few days later, Yi found another unwary Japanese fleet of 26 vessels in still another strong defensive position. Yet again, he went straight into action at the Battle of Tanhang Po. Most of the Japanese vessels had single levels, but one comprised three levels. It had to be taken out. Sun Sin deftly maneuvered his fleet into a circle formation, with the turtle ship once again leading at the point of the attack. The turtle rammed into the three-tiered Japanese command ship. The sound of the two ships connecting was like a forest of tree branches cracking under the weight of snow all at once, a sickening, death-signaling sound. But the Japanese ship held, nobly withstanding the turtle ship's onslaughts. Yi withdrew his war fleet, hoping to goad the Japanese into yet another hasty trap in the open ocean. Once again, his ruse worked like a charm. Sun Sin himself details what happened next, quote, Then our ships suddenly encircled the enemy craft from all directions, attacking them from both flanks at full speed. The turtle rammed the enemy's command vessel, and our other ships hit its sails with fire arrows. Furious flames burst out, and the enemy commander fell dead from an arrow hit, end quote. The Japanese watercraft attempted to flee. Only one made it out of the death trap. Twenty-five Japanese ships were either wrecked or captured. The senior Japanese commander greeted the onrushing Korean swordsmen in single combat, fighting to the last, a samurai sword gleaming like a tiara in his hand. A modern novelist imagines what happened next, quote, like a surreal Asian martial arts film, the captain nimbly cut down first one and then another Korean, slicing through the white-clad pajamas of the Koreans, leaving shreds of blood-stained white cloth streaming in the wind like ticker tape as he struck at his enemies. The captain's footwork was impeccable. He rode the swaying ship as a trembling circle of Korean warriors hedged around him. Surrounded, the captain kept his sword and head marble statue straight, as if Donatello had left Italy and carved the man into his battle stance. The captain 
captain's eagle eyes, trained from youth in the way of the sword, took in every movement of the enemy in his vision. For the enemies fanning out behind him, his ears did the work his eyes could not. For a while, the surrounding Korean foot soldiers hesitated, feigning attacks, but few dared to enter the kill zone, a pack of wolves surrounding a desperate lion. Then, from behind, two Koreans nod at one another and lunge for the captain. There were few who could actually say what happened next. The captain was faster than Rambo. His ears overlapped his brain and sent movement signals directly to his legs and arms. Turning, the captain shot his katana out into the leading Korean sword, angling it away from his body. Then, quicker than you can hear these words, the sword bit into the first warrior's wrist, sending a geometric line of blood into the wooden deck. Next, the samurai eagle dived his blade into the right shoulder of the second Korean man, who consequently dropped his sword. That was the last thing he ever did, because the captain then laid a stroke to the man's back. A slim tree struck by a blow from an expert lumberjack will tremble and then slowly slide apart. Just so, the second Korean spine trembled before disconnecting under the blow. But while these four strokes fell, the rest of the wolves closed in on the distracted lion. The blade struck the captain's back three times before he turned around as if nothing had happened. His katana shot into the midst of three Korean swords, and like a veteran bartender stirring a drink, it quickly deflected the swords away as the Korean's kangaroo hopped backwards away from the samurai, but the samurai was quick. One of the three Koreans who bounded away left a quivering prime rib slice of his rectus femoris muscle on the deck where the samurai had permanently knifed it away. Stop! screamed one Kyun, the Korean commander. Get away from him! The blood-stained captain held his sword up with pride, a Black Panther in 1960s Los Angeles. He nodded his head as he saw the Korean archers form up in a semicircle around him, scores of yards out of his blade's range. Then the captain let out a death scream. No words, just a noble scream. And the scream was suddenly silenced. And the captain's throat never played that note again because he was pierced with ten arrows. End Quote. An eyewitness later recalled what happened after the captain was dealt his death blow from the arrows. Quote, he shouted loudly and fell. Then his head was cut off. End quote. Few Japanese ships got away. The Koreans had won yet another sea victory, but Yi had been too successful. For days he searched for more Japanese to destroy, but there were none left. They had disappeared like the bison on the North American plains. By this time, the Japanese on land had reached Pyongyang. On the Korean peninsula, they were seemingly unstoppable, but here on sea, the Koreans were the samurai. The situation in the two spheres was almost completely reversed. Land and sea, the heart of geopolitics. How different would Korea and East Asia be if there was no little strips of ocean between Japan and the mainland? Land and sea, the eternal antithesis. We see the two opposites play out against one another yet again in the Im-Jin War. But Admiral Yi still had one major battle to fight at sea in 1592. In this battle, Yi faced Admiral Wakazaka Yasaharu, who was in charge of 73 Japanese watercraft. They would meet each other at the Battle of Hansando, what one historian called the Trafalgar of the Im-Jin War. Preparations for the battle started easy enough. Admiral Yi was taking on water when an epileptic peasant nearly wet himself as he explained 
what he had just seen to Admiral Yi. The agitated peasant explained he had seen well over 80 Japanese ships and knew their exact location. Yi immediately, without hesitation, dropped everything and set sail to destroy them. Friends, almost all of you will have one or two rare opportunities in your life for a woman, for money. Strike hard. Strike fast. Because if you don't, someone else will. There's always someone out to steal your money and your woman. Thus it was, thus it is, thus it ever shall be. Now the Japanese armada was located in a narrow channel where Korean tactics would have minimal impact. Admiral Sun Sen decided to try and lure Admiral Yasaharu into the open sea where his tried and true tactics could destroy the Japanese fleet. Consequently, Yi started the engagement by making a false retreat, which, predictably, the Japanese believed was a true retreat. Yi had sent six Panoxan warships into the Japanese-occupied waterway. The six Korean ships promptly fled after the Japanese got a good look at them. Seventy-three Japanese vessels followed the fleeing Koreans, who promptly led them behind an island where Admiral Yi's entire armada was waiting for them, strewn out in a crane formation. There's a map up on the website if you want to see what the formation looked like. Now, the Japanese after-action report later described the Korean battle line as an upside-down smile, which drew the Japanese fleet into the middle of the line while closing the flanks and attacking on the sides. By now, Yi had three turtle ships, and they formed the vanguard of the Korean attack. Admiral Sun Sen recounted what happened at the beginning of the battle like this, quote, then I roared, charge! Our ships dashed forward with the roar of cannon and rifle fire, breaking three enemy vessels into sinking halves. The screams and garbles of the drowning men formed a musical hymn to our attack, end quote. Stephen Turnbull picks up the story, quote, The fight now became a bloody free-for-all. The Korean ships trying to keep their victims at a distance so as to bombard the Japanese without risk of a boarding party being sent out against them. Much hand-to-hand -hand fighting took place, but the all-knowing Admiral Yi only allowed this if the Japanese vessel was already crippled. A turtle boat captured one enemy vessel and promptly decapitated seven Japanese sailors. Then a Korean captain named Chong Un drove holes into two large enemy vessels with cannon fire and burned them completely by attacks in cooperation with other ships. The greatest glory fell on two Korean officers. Admiral Yi Sun Sin himself reports about the two men's actions this way, quote, Magistrate Quan Chun, forgetting all about himself, penetrated the enemy position first, breaking and capturing one large enemy main battlecraft, and personally beheading ten Japanese and the commander of the ship. Next, Magistrate Yong Tam dashed forward, breaking and capturing another large enemy vessel. He hit the enemy captain with an arrow, brought him back to my ship, but before interrogation he fell dead, so I ordered the man's head to be cut off. End quote. Yet another contemporary chronicler recounts what happened to Japanese Admiral Wakazaka. Quote, Wakazaka was on board a fast ship with many oars. He attacked, but when the battle went sour, he withdrew freely to safety. Arrow struck against his armor, but he was unafraid even though there were ten dead for everyone living, and the enemy ships were attacking everyone. As his ship was repeatedly attacked by fire arrows, his extremely fast ship was able to outrun all the Korean vessels, and so Wakazaka made it to safety. However, one Japanese captain could not face the dishonor of withdrawal. His name was Manabe Samanasuki. 
His ship was set on fire, a blazing inferno of floating hell. He told his men he could not face meeting another samurai after his defeat, and then he committed suicide and died amidst the flames, his guts spilling out amidst the falling, glowing red timbers of his command post. End quote. What an end to a Japanese film that man's death could make. And at the end of the battle, yet another Japanese fleet was destroyed. A contemporary Korean chronicler details the importance Yi Sun Sin's campaign had for the entire Korean people. Quote, the enemy originally planned to attack from a joint land and sea army, but as a result of Yi Sun Sin's campaign, they lost their momentum and did not dare advance any further beyond Pyongyang. Yi's victory made it possible for us to secure two provinces and parts of the sea near the capital. As a result, we were able to deliver supplies and orders to our armies and insurgents in the field with little interferences, which was crucial to the restoration of our nation. Sun Sin's victory also strengthened Ming China's resolve to send its army by land to rescue us from the enemy. All these good results were because of General Yi." End quote. It was General Yi that stopped the combined sea and land invasion of Korea. It was General Yi that enabled Korean forces to receive supplies and regroup. It was General Yi who won the victories that convinced China to liberate Korea. It was because of General Yi Sun Sin that the Korean people exist as a distinct nation today. Such is the power of the individual. Such is the power of one man, Napoleon, Shaka Zulu, General Yi Sun Sin. Individual human personality can take the wheel of history in his hands, and not just generals, but there are the thankless politicians like Solon and the lawgivers like Lycurgus and Moses, men whose very names lend legitimacy to the institutions they attach their names to. There are the thinkers like Nietzsche and Marx. There are the poets like Homer and Milton, not to mention folklorists, and writers like Elias Lonrot and his Kalevala, which laid the foundation stone of the Finnish people. There are religious leaders like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, which laid the foundation stone for the millions of people calling Salt Lake Valley home, who almost, but not quite, created a new nation, but nevertheless did create a new people. Then there are the hunted leaders who found small sects like the Hutterites. There are men whose machines kiss our fingertips every day. Men like Bill Gates whose program is filling my eyeballs as I type these very words. But in the universities of the West, everything is directed downward. What was life like for peasants, for overweight 50-year-old women in Northern Ireland, for the asexual and the perverted? Little attention is given to the creative and the creators, people who make our world safer, more beautiful, more comfortable. The medical doctors who cure the diseases of the whiners, the military men who built the walls that brought us peace from our oppressors, their tales are almost never told. There's a place for looking downward into the chthonic dirt. Moses and Lycurgus knew that, and so do I. But there is a place for looking up, too, into the hyperborean sky. That is where beauty and honor live. There is nobility. There is honor. There is loyalty. Beauty and strength exist along with weakness and penury. Willing hearts are worth more than liberated donkeys. Character is worth more than anarchy. Work is worth more than laziness. Men and women who take care of their children are worth more than gold. The holy apostle, his voice ringing with divinity, said those who will not take care of their own are less than infidels, and those who will not work should not eat. There is dirt, but there is also sky. There is mud, but there is also mountains. We can look down, but we can look up, too. Here on Battlecast, we see both sides of the coin 
coin of the human condition, not the biased, ignorant protestations of one side or the other. Anyway, while most of the Japanese ships were destroyed, 400 Japanese men abandoned their boats and swam to shore. Thus ended the first phase of the greatest defeat of a Japanese force in the entire war. But there was a second phase. Because two other smaller Japanese fleets had been sent to reinforce the Japanese armada that had just been destroyed by Yi. So by this time, the remaining Japanese vessels amounted to just 42 ships. Of course, Yi tried his old favorite tactic of fake withdrawal, but by this time the Japanese had finally learned never to follow Yi, no matter what, you don't follow Yi Sun Sin. So as a result, the Japanese remained safe at anchor and did not take Yi's bait, but that was no matter for a master like Yi. He slipped a few ships loaded with cannon into the harbor the Japanese were hiding in and had his Korean cannons bombard the anchored Japanese craft a few at a time. Then the Korean ships withdrew and another few ships entered the harbor and bombarded the Japanese rump fleet while always remaining firmly out of range of any Japanese response. Simply put, it worked. Most of the Japanese sailors were killed. The ones who survived fled to land. And as night fell, Yi withdrew his armada to ensure there was no surprise attacks under cover of darkness. The next day, he returned to destroy the remaining Japanese ships, but all the survivors had fled in the night. An eyewitness recalled what happened next like this, quote, We looked over the battleground of the day before and found that the escaped Japanese had cremated their dead in twelve heaps. There were charred bones and severed hands and legs scattered all over the ground, and blood was spattered everywhere, turning the land and sea itself red." After the battle, Admiral Yi had the ninety Japanese heads his men had decapitated, delicately packed and preserved in salt, and then shipped first class to his king. As Jin Wong Kim notes, the Japanese plan had been to occupy southern and central Korea, while the Japanese navy conquered the rich, rice-producing areas of Korea near the ocean. Because of Admiral Yi, this plan was totally upended. Korean domination of the sea lasted for the rest of the war. The Koreans now knew they had a fighting chance to repel the Japanese. All of their major cities had been taken, that was true. But now the samurai were deep in Korean territory, and no reinforcements were coming to aid them. The Japanese in Korea were on their own, cut off and strung out. But the Koreans had a mighty ally, China who could send troops to bolster Korean resolve, and the Koreans themselves were learning how to fight too. What they had failed to achieve in one decisive set-piece battle, they would now try to achieve with a protracted guerrilla campaign. And so the Imjin land war entered a second guerrilla phase. Two modern historians introduced the second guerrilla phase of the war, which started in the summer of 1592 with this excellent summary, so I'm just going to quote-unquote. By the fall of 1592, the Japanese position on land increasingly weakened. The general populace at first was infuriated at the government's incompetence and responsibility, and some even collaborated with the enemy. But now the same people began to volunteer for the militia called the Umyong, or Righteous Army, mostly because they were enraged by Japanese atrocities against Korean civilians. Local intellectuals, peasants, and even slaves in a single district coalesced around a Ubuyon leader and constantly harassed the Japanese while usually avoiding major engagements. 
The guerrilla leaders were generally Confucian intellectuals of high repute in their locations. Bands of Buddhist monks led by revered figures often struck severe blows to Japanese military operations. Guerrilla activities ranged from battles and sieges of isolated enemy garrisons through everything from night raids to transporting supplies and building walls. Their operations covered every area in Korea. For the seven months after June 1592, an estimated 22,200 irregulars shouldered the burden of resistance together with about 85,000 regular Korean soldiers and made a considerable contribution to the war effort, tying down Japanese troops, limiting reinforcements, never letting the enemy rest, end quote. By harassing Japanese weak points in small detachments while avoiding larger Japanese groupings, the Koreans, like the Romans facing Hannibal on a peninsula across the world, used guerrilla tactics to defeat a stronger land opponent. In this, they were following the wisdom of Sun Tzu, who wrote in his classic The Art of War, quote, So in warfare, the way to win is to avoid what is strong and strike at what is weak. We saw this truth clearly demonstrated on this show in episodes 7 and 8 when the Romans faced down Hannibal and his veteran Carthaginians for more than a decade in Italy. And now we're seeing it in tonight's show. Here is a phenomenological truth across cultures, a truth that is as true for Zulus in South Africa as it is for Koreans in East Asia. I should note that political realism actually reflects universal human experiences and values, whereas many of the utopias invented by world improvers do not reflect universal human experience and values. Many of our well-fed and well-paid philosophers take the peace they luxuriate in for granted. They ignore the empirical data of history in order to pursue whatever idol they have dreamed up for not only themselves, but for all of us as well. Fortunately, in my study of Israeli political thinking, I found little of these sentiments. However, I should point out utopian political thought was prominently found even in Israel, a first world nation surrounded by enemies. There's something dissipating in luxury and selfishness. The famous Quebecois filmmaker Denis Ekan noted as much in his excellent documentary on Quebec in the early 1980s, Comfort and Indifference. His fictional films, The Barbarian Invasions and The Decline of the American Empire, explore the same themes. We can say with Nietzsche, what values and demi-religious goals would wealthy, non-productive intelligentsia produce if their lives were fattened with safety, extensive benefits, and wealth? Not to mention petty influence, which facilitates their seduction of nubile graduate students. And so our intellectuals in the West chase after utopias. Many of them don't even really believe in the utopias anymore, but they mouth and enforce the old creeds as if they do. Anyway, from the summer of 1592 to January 1593 on land, Korea engaged in a successful guerrilla campaign against the Japanese. Many generals from this period are remembered as legendary Robin Hood-type figures. They achieved notable successes and, it should be noted, also sustained a number of defeats against the samurai. 
Because of time constraints, it would be impossible to note in detail all the minor skirmishes which took place during the guerrilla phase of the conflict. Besides, it would be both boring to recount and to hear it all. So instead, I want to note some of the highlights of the guerrilla conflict. One thing that has always fascinated me is religious military orders. Groups of men like the Knights Templar and even modern-day Taliban fanatics. Their worldview is so totally different from the mainstream West. They're oriented wholly toward what Rene Guénon might call above or heaven. Well, in the Imjin War, 8,000 Buddhist monks in their own units, led by their own leaders, took part in the Korean crusade against the Japanese. The idea originated with the Korean king, who summoned a monk named Hyung Jung and declared him the national leader of all the monks in Korea. Hyung Jung promptly composed and set out a manifesto to all the monks in Korea, calling for them to join the war against the invaders. This is what the letter said, quote, Alas, the way of heaven is no more, the letter read, but the destiny of our country is on the decline. In defiance of heaven and reason, the cruel foe has crossed the sea aboard a thousand ships. We must remember the five secular precepts which command us to meet the enemy and die in battle without flinching. The samurai are poisonous devils, snakes, merely animals. So I call on you to put on the armor and mercy of the gods, hold in hand the treasured sword to fell the devils, wield the lightning bolts of the eight deities, and come forward to join me in battle." In quote. Thousands of monks did take up the dazzling lightning bolts and join Hyeongjong in bloody war. And in September of 1592, the monks faced their first major engagement at the Battle of Chongju. They were led by Yonggyu, who enthusiastically led a vehement anti-Japanese movement among his fellow clerics. Now, this was a big deal because Chongju was one of the most important transport bases for the Japanese in Korea as it lay directly on the Japanese line of resupply, and consequently the Japanese would fanatically defend it. Not only would the capture of Chongju cut the Japanese off from resupply, but it would also serve as a base of operations for the Koreans to defend the northern sections of their territory from renewed Japanese incursions. In other words, the base had to be taken. On September 6, 1592, 1,500 warrior monks, along with about 1,500 mixed regular and guerrilla troops, attacked the Japanese at Shanju Fortress. The monks attacked at two gates, while the regulars attacked the third gate. They were quickly beaten back, so the Koreans withdrew to lick their wounds and coordinate a second assault. That night, the Koreans lit numerous fires and raised hundreds of flags to give the impression of a giant host massing to take the castle. The terrified Japanese took the bait completely and abandoned Shanju in the night. The next day, the Koreans just walked in like they owned the place. Once again, I'm reminded of Sun Tzu. The supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without even fighting. However, there was a problem among the Korean insurgents. All three groups, the regulars, the monks, and the volunteers, took credit for the victory at Shanju. So bitter was the infighting, the three groups had a falling out, kind of like modern-day Presbyterians. The regulars broke off from the main army, which was already fairly small to begin with. Only the monks and the volunteer guerrillas remained. These advanced on a Japanese force but could not unify to coordinate their attack. The guerrillas were led by a man named Sho Han, who foolishly decided to lead his small force, numbering about 700 men against a well-fortified Japanese garrison comprising more than 10,000 veterans. It was suicide. 
And the leader of the monks, Yong Yu, whose hatred of the Japanese was akin to a virulent anti-Semitism, begged Cho Han not to attack the veteran samurai. Cho Han stared into the distance, as if we were seeing one of the divines far away, beyond the room, beyond the world itself, and he replied thus, This is no time to ponder victory or defeat, sharpness or dullness of weapons, while the Japanese are putting our people to the sword. End quote. Even the local Korean governor intervened in the looming conflict by having relatives of the guerrillas imprisoned in an attempt to dissuade them from throwing their lives away in a suicidal death by samurai. Cho Han didn't want to hear it. He was going to drive the Japanese to the sea one way or another. And so it was that on September 22nd, Cho Han and his 700 volunteers spit in the face of the odds and danced the death dance with the Japanese at the Battle of Kumsong. The volunteers attacked the garrison, and the confused Japanese commander beat them off, carefully scanning the surrounding countryside for the real attack. Surely Cho Han was simply trying to distract him. The Japanese commanding officer diligently sent out scouts who came back at nightfall and told him there was no other Koreans in the entire region. Cho Han really was alone. The daimyo looked out over the few Korean fires burning in the night and sent them a quizzical look. You're telling me you're sure there's no other Koreans in the area, he said to the messenger. There are none, boss. The daimyo's visage suddenly changed, and he confidently nodded to himself, the way Putin nodded to himself when he easily conquered Crimea. Kill them all, was his laconic command. That night, the Japanese force surrounded the Koreans and leisurely exterminated them, picking them off the way rednecks shoot rats with 22 rifles in junkyards, laughing and joking as they carry out their grim task. Seeing the brave last stand of his comrade Cho Han and shamed by their deaths, Yong Yu decided to sacrifice himself and his army in a similar martyrdom. Over the next few days, the 1,500 monks took their turn attacking the overwhelming power of the grizzled samurai. They were pulled apart just as easily as you can gingerly pull apart a cinnamon roll. Total annihilation. Thousands of martyrs for Korea. They lost, it is true, but what a way to lose. Cho Han and Yong Yu went down fighting. Such a people are hard to conquer. Such a people are hard to kill. And then, a few weeks later, the 10,000-strong Japanese force withdrew. It had worked. The extreme sacrifices of Cho Han and Yong Yu had convinced the Japanese the province wasn't worth holding, so they abandoned it, sort of like the way the Americans abandoned Vietnam. It's not that they couldn't win any battle. It's just that the Americans were no longer willing to pay the high price in blood and treasure the Vietnamese exacted for each American win, just so the Japanese withdrew from the region. Stephen Turnbull takes up the story, quote, Everywhere in Korea, the volunteers were on the march. Revolts broke out all over the map. They usually were successfully put down by the Japanese, but they tied down the already overstretched samurai resources. On the east coast, a volunteer army enticed the Japanese garrison out of a castle and burned the castle to the ground. Inspired by this example, a guerrilla leader named Pak Chin attacked a garrison and burned some outbuildings, but the Japanese sallied out and attacked them in the rear, causing massive casualties. Nothing daunted, Pak Chin returned later with a secret weapon. He fired it over the walls of the fort and something rolled across the courtyard. The Japanese rushed to examine it. 
At that moment, the object suddenly exploded, sending fragments of hot iron splintering into tender Japanese flesh and causing a second wave of casualties. The men were so terrified by the new development, they evacuated the fortress. At the same time, the famed guerrilla leader Quack Che U led his troops in a number of small victories. Korea was far from safely pacified, end quote. That's when Admiral Yi Sun Sin struck again in a brave attempt to destroy yet another Japanese fleet at Pusan. But Yi had never encountered a fleet this large before. Over 100 Japanese ships waited to engage him. Yi easily destroyed four Japanese ships lying outside the main battle group. But when the Korean fleet sailed in close, they came under heavy fire from both the 100 Japanese ships, but also shore batteries the samurai had carefully placed on the abutting land. The Japanese had equipped the castles at Pusan with captured Korean cannons. Now the samurai could finally shoot back. The Korean superiority in artillery was finally nullified. The two fleets engaged one another before Yi broke off contact. The admiral's extreme military advantage was finally diminished, but he still was not broken. Yi still controlled the sea. His control was just more attenuated, the way a disciplined father controls an aging, unruly teenager. The Japanese sought to fix their deteriorating situation in the north by taking the rebel stronghold of Chinju. 20,000 Japanese set out to capture it. The Koreans formed a battle line on top of a hill to stop them. The samurai army easily defeated these Koreans and pressed forward into guerrilla territory, taking two key forts along the way. Finally, the Japanese arrived at Chinju Castle, where 4,000 Koreans sought to stop the Japanese advance. The Japanese initial assault on the castle caught a few Korean stragglers outside the castle walls, and these were promptly decapitated, the samurai holding their heads in the sky and screaming like orcs in the film The Two Towers. A modern historian explains what happened next. Quote, when the Japanese hit the walls, the Koreans threw everything they had at them, including hundreds of new firearms made to match the Japanese guns. The Japanese advantage in rifles was no more. Rifle balls, bullets, exploding bombs, and heavy stones caved in and disfigured hundreds of Japanese faces. This was not what the samurai had expected, so they changed tactics and made shields out of bamboo and under the cover of mass volleys of rifle fire approached close to the walls where long scaling ladders were set up. As the samurai scrambled up the ladders, the defenders ignored the bullets flying two inches from their foreheads and bombarded the samurai with rocks, smashing many ladders to pieces. Meanwhile, delayed action bombs and lumps of stone fell into the mass of Japanese soldiers waiting their turn to fight." End quote. A contemporary who was there recounts the assault on the walls like this, quote, Our men climbed up the ladders in a swarm. Because of this, the ladders almost broke, and many comrades fell down from their climb. Consequently, many ladders were rendered useless. One samurai realized the trouble and told his retainers, Until I have personally climbed into the castle, this ladder is for one person to climb, one at a time. If anyone else climbs, I'll take his head off. Then the master samurai climbed. Because of this, the ladder did not break, and he got on top of the wall. Consequently, before very long, he placed his hands on the wall, but when he tried to make his entry, spears and swords were thrust at him and made him fall to the bottom of the moat, where many of his bones were broken, and he rolled around most pitifully. Still, the attack went on, while the fallen samurai looked on with grimacing eyes of pain, end quote. The battle ground on like this for three 
desperate days. A guerrilla army under Kwok Cheu arrived and Kwok ordered his men to light five torches while blowing their horns in order to simulate a giant army. The trick did not work. The Japanese pressed on in their attack on Shinju. On November 12th, the worried samurai made a final attempt to storm the castle. The assault was like nothing that had taken place before. Makeshift Japanese towers sent bullets into the hearts of the castle itself. Mortars with delayed fuses caught men as they tried to find a respite from the battle. The Japanese commander himself was shot in the forehead and died fighting on the front line. Still, the battle went on. A few Korean reinforcements infiltrated into the castle, carrying invaluable supplies with them. Now all the Japanese were committed to one last desperate assault. But at this point, they had no rear guard, and realizing his position was desperate, the commanding Japanese officer decided to withdraw. Shinju Castle had held out against the cream of Bushido-infused Japanese soldiers. An entire region of Korea remained Korean-held and Korean-ruled. Finally, the Koreans had won their most epic land battle. The mystique of the samurai was no more. They could be killed on land and on sea. Then, in January 1593, the unexpected happened. 40,000 Chinese troops invaded northern Korea in order to drive the Japanese into the sea. Hideyoshi's entire plan had been to easily conquer Korea and then press on into China itself. Now the entire game board was upended. It was like playing Call of Duty when all of a sudden the Covenant from Halo invade your video game. It's just not supposed to happen. But the enemy always has a way of making the unexpected happen. China who had previously been bogged down with internal conflicts, now set out to show Hideyoshi who was the real ruler of East Asia, the Ming Emperor. And so the war entered its third phase. But that's another podcast. All right. Well, that's another one of the books for me. And buddy, I can tell you I'm glad it's over because my throat is killing me. Once again, I want to thank everybody who buys us around. I really appreciate it. You guys keep us going. And until next time, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye. All right, John from Whitefish. I'm about to try this fancy beer you told me to try. All right, pop it with me. Here we go. One, two, three. Oh, John. That is good. John wanted me to try this thing. Uh, Tin Barrel Brewing Company's Crush Apricot Sour. It's been years, John, since I had a sour. And this is a super good one. Thank you, first off, for buying it. And second off, giving me the tip to try it out. This is a damn fine beer. Anybody out there who's never had a sour, never looking to try something different, you definitely should try Crush apricot sour and by this time i'm probably sounding like a damn commercial i promise this isn't a commercial i don't do stuff like that i want you guys to know that i'm thankful for you i'm thankful that i can keep this show going my wife asked me the other day luke why do you do this show you've only got a few thousand listeners it's not worth it will you kill yourself for it? and i told her these stories matter how many of you knew about admiral yi sun sin before i told you about him this is one of the greatest military and political leaders in human history not western history not east asian history in human history the same is true about the history of the zulu people in south africa how important is this and we know nothing about it well you know what all that history all our peoples 
they matter to me. They really do. And, and anything men have died for, it's worth somebody remembering. And how many people have the resources that I have and the ability to bring them all together for a show? Not that many. And so that's why I do this show. Not for apricot sour beer, but for the men who died. And ultimately, a little bit of us is in all those peoples and all those men. And so that's why I do it, for them to keep that memory alive. And so until next time, drink one with me. I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people again. Bye.